Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a really exciting discussion on the value and the importance of vitamin D for improving your immune function and resistance to all sorts of viral infection, including the one that has driven the vast majority of the population into house arrest. So uh, it's going to be about vitamin D. And we have three guests, not one, not two, but three guests to join us today. Um, we'll first, first start with the veteran, Dr. Bruce Hollis, uh, who is at the Medical University of South Carolina, and is, he has a PhD and has been researching vitamin D since the late 70s, the late 70s. He's a pioneer veteran researcher in this field, and he certainly predated my experience with it. And then his associate in doing research at the Medical University of South Carolina is Dr. Carol Wagner, who is a physician, a neonatologist. No, a well, you, yeah, a neonatologist. Yeah, okay, neonatologist, who is also doing uh, quite a bit of vitamin D research, and she's been involved in vitamin D since the, when I was was. 20 years ago. So that's a long time. I think I was maybe the first medical journalist to start heavily promoting it and, and catalyzing the interest in this because the, I, mean, I certainly didn't create the, the knowledge, but I helped ex accelerate it. And I think maybe that might be one of the best things I've ever done medically is to help the medical field, the conventional physicians understand and adopt this. And then finally, we have Carol Baggerly, who's the latecomer to the field. She she uh, started. Yeah, she's been doing it for thir thirteen years. Yeah, <laughs> but she's had maybe one of the most important roles because she's a great facilitator and organizer, and has helped uh, really uh, coordinate many of the the best experts in vitamin D in the world and putting together uh, research to further. Uh, penetrate the understanding and awareness of vitamin D. So welcome everyone and thank you for joining us. Our pleasure. Pleasure. All right. So uh, I, what I'd like to start with now, um, and I'm not sure who's the, uh, the best qualified, but I, I know whoever it is will jump in, is that uh, we've been, what I neglected to mention with Carol also, it expanded on her biography, is that she started Grassroots Health I believe 2007, 13 years ago, and we were one of the first people to work with her and help uh, spread the word. And the, I think the catalyst for your involvement was that you came down with breast cancer, and then as you started doing your diligent research, realized that, whoa, there are other things that you can do aside from removing your breast and taking radiation and chemotherapy, and vitamin D was one of them. So Definitely. not to not to diminish the, the benefit of some of those, and so, but that's a whole other discussion. We're not going to go there today because there's so much to discuss on the immune aspect. So what I would like to discuss is the study that Grassroots Health, Grassroots Health 
facilitated, which is an epidemiological review of 212 patients in Southeast Asia who had COVID-19. And uh, it was really interesting. It was a correlation, not causation study, but it showed that uh, those with the least severe disease had uh, the highest vitamin D levels, uh, at which I would somewhat dispute because they defined well, they said the highest vitamin D levels of, of optimal, their optimal was 30 nanograms per milliliter. And, and Bruce, you helped me understand many years ago that, that that minimum threshold is 40 for a variety of reasons, which you can expand on based on your research. Um, so that, the, and then they found that those that were sickest from this disease had the lowest. So it's like 4% had normal levels according to their ranges and 96% who were not that sick with it had, had normal, had healthy levels. So anyway, so, who would like to comment on that study? Because And then from there, we'll progress into why is it working, which is such an important uh, uh, aspect to understand. I'll, you know, I'll start off. Um, I saw that study come out, and it was, um, the, the, and, and unfortunately, the guy who, uh, who did that study ended up with COVID. <laughs> and he, uh, was he from Southeast Asia? What? Was he was he a U.S. researcher? Or was he Southeast Asia? No, he was Filipino guy. Okay. This is the this is the uh, the, uh, the the Philippines was the first study observational study that we saw, and he went to medical records and and he extracted data um, post facto observation, and then divided them up into three categories. It was greater than 30, 20 to thirty, and less than thirty, and then looked at the outcomes of those patients. And it was really startling because I'm looking at the graph right here. Less than less, uh, the, the outcomes of less than 20 uh, uh, of critical, severe, and moderate were were horrible. And anybody who was greater than 30 uh, who survived, uh, um, they were all in that in that greater than 30 category. And everybody looked at that, and and now th there was a lot of issues because their confounders were not taken into account in this study. Confounders meaning uh, hypertension, diabetes, they were just raw data that came out. So, but it was still startling that, that this is how it, how it shook out. Um, and uh, uh, like I said, the guy who, who did that was a radiologist and uh, he ended up with COVID. But what I was surprised in the Philippines is that they're very shy of the sun, uh, the, the natives, because they don't want to be dark. And they actually the women go to extremes of using skin lighteners uh, to make themselves lighter. And I, I think that with this now, I've actually seen the Philippine um, the Philippine military laying in the sun. Um, trying to get <laughs> I mean, and so they're they're. Uh, um, so this this uh, this study became popularized in the Philippines. Yes, this was the first one in the Philippines. Okay, so and. Uh, that was the first one to make any headway. But then, uh, you want me to talk? There was a subsequent study that came out. Too. Sure, I'm not aware of that one. Sir. Okay, I this was in Indonesia. Okay, and the Indonesia study was 780 hospital patients, and the, they again they extracted data from um, from uh, uh, medical records and. 780 hospital patients. And this one was really remarkable because what they did is they adjusted for confounders. Hmm. And again, they, they had levels of greater than 30, 20 to 30, and less than 20. 
And then if, and then further, what they did was they, they broke that down into risk ratios. So the people who had greater than 30, if you're using that as one. And these are nanograms per milliliter, right? Yeah, 30 nanograms per ml, 20 to 30 and less than 20. Okay, that's how they defined it. So if they had, uh, if you were looking at this as a risk factor uh, where uh, greater than 30 was one, and then 20 to 30 was another group and less than 20. So the 20 to 30 had a seven times greater risk of death. And the less than 20 was 12 times the, the, uh, the rate of death as the greater than 30 population. And that was after adjusting for cofactors. Well, that, so that, was that was an observational study, but that's really strong data. Yeah, it is. It's not, again, it's not a correlation because it's just a, uh, it's, it's just a correlation. It's not a causation study. But uh, I'm wondering, you're the one who helped me understand that the, the ideal level should be a minimum of 40. So here we have 10 nanograms. I mean, literally 25% lower than your, your uh, ex, uh, understanding of what a healthy level is. So do you think the, the, the just improvements would have been even more dramatic if it was at 40? Yeah, maybe, you know, I, I, I would hope so. I mean, you know, it, how we define 40 as an ideal level goes back to Carol, uh, Carol and my uh, Wagner and pregnancy study where we plotted thousands of data points uh, where, because we are in, in those studies, we were measuring vitamin D itself in blood and 25D. And then we plotted that and you looked at curvilinear relationships and you looked at where the curve flattened, uh, uh, where 25 D and D, and if you did the if you did the mathematics, you found out that that uh, that the curve flattened when 25 D reached 40 nanograms. That's when the the enzyme basically is shutting down uh, uh, to making uh, 25 D, converting it from vitamin D to 25 D. And so that's how we we came up with mathematically came up with 40 as being the probably the low end of uh, what we should be looking at. And then, I mean, that was just, uh, that was just mathematics. And then we started looking with Carol Baggerly, you know, they started plotting outcomes and I'm gonna let them talk about that, but they started plotting outcomes and looking at blood levels um, and, and it became very important, as Carol's gonna tell you, not to look at the amount you, we gave, but amount that's in the, what resulted in the blood levels. Yeah. So, and the one point right here is that the 40 as a minimum, the various levels really are somewhat dependent upon uh, what condition you're talking about. The 40, based on the data we have and we have accrued from um, MUSC and Carol and Bruce, is really a minimum level to help uh, reduce the incidence of preterm births. I mean, the, the rate keeps going up until you get to 40 and then it essentially plateaus. On the other hand, the data that we have had for the reduction in the incidence of breast cancer goes all the way out to 60 nanograms per milliliter. It can still make a big difference. So the, those ranges, um, and that's kind of why I think as grassroots health, we find it perfectly safe and in one sense recommended that people get to the higher end because you really want to take as good a care of yourself as you can. 
Absolutely. So let's go to Carol Wagner now uh, and have her comment on the, maybe a little bit of the historical component because your passion is also nutrition. And when we both started in this, the common understanding of the benefits of vitamin D was, was restricted primarily to the benefit of building bone. Absolutely. Beyond that, it was yeah. like worthless. Didn't yes. do a darn thing. It only hurt you. Exactly. So, um, I, um, I think my, my interest in, in vitamin D was really to try to figure out what was, um, you know, could we make women who are pregnant and lactating more replete? And I started looking at, you know, the, the literature um, back in the turn of the 20th century, Melon D, and, and started reading about, um, you know, how they reported children with rickets and they had dog models with rickets and they had increased respiratory infections. And um, Bruce and I had several conversations about it. And, you know, at the time, it, it was not really um, appreciated that vitamin D had an immense effect on immune function. Uh, but you do have this historical data. It was attributed in the, in the children and in the dog models um, of, you know, the, the rachetic children um, that they had poor bone strength and couldn't, they couldn't um, breathe deeply enough. And so they developed pneumonias and, and whatnot. Um, but since then, um, vitamin D has been linked with type two cells in the lungs and surfactant production. Um, and there's more and more data, you know, every year, if you do a, a PubMed search, you see literally thousands of articles. Um, and the, you know, the premise is though that, um, you know, you see this really rich um, uh, basic science information that's been accumulating um, really in the last two decades that strongly supports um, vitamin D's role in immunity. But then when um, randomized controlled trials are done, um, there are some that suggest vitamin D is um, effective and others, you know, say no. And so that has really been, um, it's been a contentious issue. And I'm sure Bruce and Carol will agree with me that, you know, doing nutrient studies is not the same as doing a, a pharmacologic, um, a pharma study. So um, where, um, you know, when you start out studying a particular drug of interest, they start with zero as their baseline. But in vitamin D, everybody is, is you know, somewhat different. And so, um, you know, using a biomarker, which is what we use in our studies, um, total circulating 25 OHD um, is a much better indicator. So, um, and Bruce and Carol, you might want to comment about that. Yeah, I would like to comment about why we have a deficiency, because that seems to be almost totally unknown, even amongst many professionals. The well, reason before, before we go, why don't we just follow up on what Carol was saying? Sure. And, uh, because it's a really huge issue, and, it, and there are many criticisms hurled at vitamin D uh, mm -hmm. with respect to failed studies, and they fail. Almost every single one of them fail for one reason and one reason alone. They did the study improperly because exactly. they failed exactly. to measure the vitamin D level that Dr. Wagner right. just referenced. Mm -hmm. so yeah, was why don't you discuss how prevalent this is because people have no idea. Well, I, I think mean, 
in a nutrient study with vitamin D, it's always been the dosage. How much you're going to give? 600, 400, 1,000, uh, and with no concern about what attained blood levels would be. And so in our studies, of course, we always measure blood levels. The studies that Carol and I carried out in pregnancy, they were monitored by the FDA. We had to get an investigational drug number to run these studies. Uh, it was unheard of to have to do that. Uh, what, for, what year was that? First? That was 2003, I believe, that we got the NIH grant, and then they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you guys can't do this study. We're worried you're going to hurt somebody. <laughs> because we, because yeah. the UL was 2000, and we knew that that wasn't going to be, we needed to give at least four. And so we, we wrote what we call a, a non-exempt IND, where you just fill out a couple of pages and send it to the FDA. And they'll send you back a thing and say, go ahead. Well, that's not the letter we got back. <laughs> no. The letter we got back was, we need you to write a full-blown IND like drug companies do. Yeah. yeah. And so it took us six months and constant work. And they, we were finally awarded the IND. But, but the, because of that, it, we were followed like a drug trial from the Food and Drug Administration. Monthly food, you know, we had monitors and, you know, they followed everything. And so, uh, you, and in the end, um, the contentious issue, and I mean, we proved that the levels we were 4,000 units were totally harmless as far as dosing went. Uh, but, you know, it's still a fight uh, whenever these com we, we get into these things is how much are you going to get? We're going to give 4,000 or 6,000. And uh, you can't do that because that potentially is harmful. But I can tell you, we have yet to see a, a one adverse event due to vitamin D in any of the studies that Carol and I have carried out. Not a single one. Or am I aware of any in any of the studies that I've been involved with? On, on, uh, um, uh, well, you, you, your team is doing it the right way. But you, can you comment on your review of the literature? Because you're an assiduous reviewer of the vitamin D literature. And what percentage of those studies and, and investigators are not doing blood tests and they're just giving well, essentially giving them a dose a specific number of units well, the vital just the vital study was that's what they did they gave i think the highest dose was 2000 and uh and they they didn't measure blood levels either in the beginning uh no baseline blood levels there was a few thrown in there but they had no idea across the board what how those patients were responding in blood levels so. One of the things that's really important about this whole process is this process was put back together, as, as you've mentioned, at the time people were testing drugs. And as you know, we know now, for many, that's not appropriate. However, when Grassroots Health and uh, Dr. Wagner, Hollis, um, Dr. Newman um, from MUSC went to the FDA, we physically went up there to ask for um, an ability to be able to print on the bottom or side or whatever of any vitamin D supplement that this may um, help have a healthy pregnancy. And I don't remember the exact uh, wording. Yeah, prevention and, of uh, better birth outcomes. Thank you. And what we were told in that meeting by the FDA person was according to what dose. And we explained repeatedly that it wasn't a dose, it was a serum level. And the FDA person in charge of that says, 
by law, by law, we can only accept recommendations based on dose. And if you can't provide us what dose, we cannot accept your um, achievement of any recommendation. And that just made us gag. So the laws are out of date, to say the least. Okay, Dr. But, Wagner, can you comment on the number of studies that are out there that fail to do it correctly? I mean, is it a high percentage? <laughs> is it more than 50%? Or? You know, I, I don't know about a particular number, but I, I, see, I see it pretty commonly. And um, the other, the other um, issue is um, how do you... So, so the, the studies, you know, you try as a reviewer to give the feedback and saying, you know, you really, I, I think I would definitely say the quality of the studies over the last 10 years has improved. So I think more and more um, studies are measuring baseline um, 25 OHD. Um, they may or may not um, be reporting the end um, level. And so, you know, the, that that's problematic um and i think that you know robert haney was really instrumental in trying to help us um figure out um how to do nutrient studies and he published widely on that and the other issue is nothing happens in a silo and you know this better than anyone it's not just one nutrient right it's the interaction of many and so um you know so uh, there may be um, some other competing deficiencies um, that could be affecting a particular um, uh, sub-cohort or population. Um, we see the most profound effects in those. Um, Bruce will tell you about a study that was conducted in Iran where profound deficiency because of religious and cultural um, customs. And you see the greatest effect. We see the greatest effect in our African American population um, when we, um, um, you know, give them adequate um, um, dosing and so forth. So I think that that's really issue. And then, of course, um, as you brought up earlier, how do you define deficiency? And and again, there's a lot of controversy about that. That's deficiency from, from skeletal or deficiency from every other thing. Because to me, that's a breakdown. It's skeletal issues are, have a much lower threshold for blood levels than, say, you know, Im immune function. They're two separate systems. One's an endocrine and one's a paracrine, autocrine function. Yeah, because that's, you bring up a good point because many people view vitamin D as, as vitamin. I mean, that's what it says, right? It's a vitamin, but in reality, it's just, it's a steroid hormone. Absolutely. That, that literally epigenetically regulates mm. the expression of thousands of genes, thousands mm. of genes. Yes. Which is why it's so profoundly effective. Uh, I, you know, it is not my favorite supplement, though. And that's because I haven't swallowed vitamin D in over a decade. But I'm one of those oddballs that even though I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I live in Florida, so we have no stay-at-home orders, which is like one of the most ridiculous implementations by the government. Because with doing that, they're forcing people to stay inside and not get exposure to the sun and, and get increased their vitamin D levels. But anyway, if I wasn't outside in the sun regularly, and my level's like 70 nanograms, 
uh, without supplementation, then I would, would be my favorite supplement, but it just isn't. So I think maybe we should discuss that and the, 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 the need for measuring. And maybe Carol Baggerly, you can chime in too, because you've been compiling data. We've been working with you for 13 years and help, you know, many of the, our readers have participated in the study, the grassroots health study, and, and you compile lots of good data that has been very helpful. Uh, and a lot of people were reluctant to say, well, we shouldn't pay for our research. Well, this, you're pretty much paying the cost of the test, and the rest is just a mm-hmm. gift to this, your foundation, which is really providing uh, the science to, to, to advance the material, to advance the science and, and spread the word on vitamin D. Well, you, I just like to, you're talking about you get it from the sun, and we get it through supplementation, and I, I get it through the sun and supplementation. Yeah, you can do both. Right. But... Um, you can tell I, you've got a nice color, Bruce. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the golf course a lot, so I, I have a, a lot of sun. My wife yells at me that I don't wear sun cream. But I, <laughs> so, but, but come to the point is that, uh, and this will come to the COVID issues. So um, see health disparities amongst people of color. It's everywhere. I mean, it's every aspect of medicine. And so when I started, uh, when this started coming out, I said, okay, I got to, I, I have to find some data that's, um, that gives me some. And the first data I saw coming out was from out of Michigan, Detroit, and it was from the NAACP. And they were complaining that, that the people of color up there were getting just hammered. And, and by that, I mean, uh, up there, they constitute the black, black people, 12% of the population they were contributing 40% of the deaths. And it was even worse in Sweden where Somali population was less than 1% and they were, they were supplying 40% of the deaths. And in Britain, 20 of the 24 healthcare physicians who had died, 23 were people of color. It was so bad that they pulled those people off their front lines, not only the physicians, but the nurses. But as you know, you know, people of color, they're in, in the environment and the latitude we live in, they're not going to be able to get enough sunlight. Uh, they, because of the amount of sun that we get and the melanin in, in their skin filtering up, I mean, it's just not possible. And so you, uh, uh, dark-skinned, uh, it's not only African-Americans, it's Indian, you know, dark-skinned Indians, Middle Eastern, take your pick, or religious practices that bar sun exposure. You cannot get vitamin D enough in those people, and and besides that fact, when you look at these at these areas, their vitamin D deficiency in in these areas where this COVID is just are they're horrible, horribly low. A lot, Carol and I'd seen levels ten five in our studies in these in these people. It's just abysmal. So it's no surprise. It's exactly, in fact, predictable. That that's, individuals that's, with these levels are, are just destined for decimation from immune dysfunction. That's yes. right. This whole issue that we're facing now with COVID is the same that is what our whole panel of scientists, uh, we've got 48 researchers um, like Bruce and Carol that have signed up and said, you've got to get your serum level up. 25-hydroxy-D to 40 to 60, and there is a consensus on that. But the, the reason we have the problem, and it's worldwide, it is not just in the United States, it is not just with this particular disease, is because there has been 
certainly the Industrial Revolution, which brought us inside, so we don't get the sun anymore, and then cultural practices, which say cover up, that are dangerous to our health when they are not just religious or cultural practices, they're actually government edicts that say stay out of the sun and blah, 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 blah. And that is truly hurting people, um, everyone. So here's an opportunity, unfortunately, to say this is one of the consequences of mm -hmm. staying out of the sun yes. and not being aware. Well, well, let's, let's address another issue, which I think is, is helpful from a perspective, because I've been somewhat ambivalent on it. And the, my belief is that the primary benefit of one of the primary benefits of vitamin D is it's a, it's a, a marker for exposure to sunlight. And, and mm -hmm. obviously pre-supplement times, the only way you had healthy vitamin D levels was exposure to the sun. You mm -hmm. couldn't swallow a supplement. I mean, you could take things like cholera, but that was somewhat unusual. So uh, the question becomes, is vitamin D levels optimized, serum levels optimized through sun exposure equivalent to D levels optimized by supplement exposure. And I was ambivalent. I, I thought that, I, I'm convinced, there's no question there's additional benefits other than ultraviolet B because there's near infrared, which has nitric mm -hmm. oxide exposure. So mm -hmm. it's superior, but it may not be superior to the, many of the markers that we're looking at. And I'm wondering if the, the three well, of you can comment. Well, I would look at, I would go back to our pregnancy studies where we achieved all of our levels by supplementation. You know, so in, in increased per, uh, outcomes, uh, pregnancy outcomes, um, uh, improved immune function. Uh, there's been other studies done, uh, randomized trials on, on uh, vitamin D supplementation and respiratory tract infections uh, going back a few years. And they were successful. One was at uh, the Kolinsky Institute in Sweden. Um, you know, and then there were two, a guy named Peter Bergman, and then uh, he subsequently wrote a meta-analysis about uh, vitamin D trials and upper re or respiratory infections, followed by another uh, meta-analysis by Adrian Martineau about in 2017, published in Brit British Medical Journal. And they clearly showed that uh, vitamin D supplementation uh, decreased uh, upper or respiratory infections in general. In fact, in a Martineau paper, they showed that vitamin D was 10 times more effective at preventing respiratory infections than were flu shots. <laughs> the strategy. The and other thing that's really we're, important just about the supplements that I, we have, I think only recently been to acknowledge is that the dosing interval is very important. Yes. Um, the sunshine, if you think about it, just logistically, we get it. Uh, if we got it by nature, we'd be out in it almost every day. Mm -hmm. uh, dosing intervals once a month or once every two months mm -hmm. do not provide. Yeah. What's the minimum? Is it once, is it once a body. week? Well, I just wanted to, I, you know, Carol brought that up, and I, I forgot both of those studies I mentioned. It was only... Uh, daily supplementation that were effective. When they looked at bolus supplementation, the effect on respiratory infection disappeared. Both of those studies were consistent. What, what was it considered bolus? Was it more, once a week or more? Uh, I think I think once a week. No, I think once a week, but if it got beyond that, that then you, you had trouble. Like every other week or once a month, or, you know, every three months. That was not effective at controlling respiratory infections. 
So we prefer always daily because yeah. that's physiologic. Um, but, and so you, in the studies that they compared, bolus dosing is not what you want to do, at least for a respiratory infection. Yeah. And the other thing that's very significant is that the, the vitamin D component that is produced in the skin as a result of the sun exposure is at one stage what we take as a supplement, the D3. Mm -hmm. And that then transits into 25 OHD, which is what we're measuring for the most part. The D3 and even the 25 OHD have been considered in times past, and the past isn't that long ago, as not being active. They're not the ones that really do the job in recent studies. And we really are talking relatively recent. The D3 itself is seen to be active in helping keep the um, lining of all the, excuse me, the epithelium uh, strength so that it helps especially with, as Dr. Hollis mentioned earlier, the... Yeah, I, I wanted uh, to talk about that, about the D3. And sure. uh, this was done by a group at the uh, University of Utah. They weren't even in vitamin D. These guys were looking at cavernous malformation syndromes where they have vascular leakage, and they screened 5,000 compounds looking for something that could... Uh, impart endothelial, uh, block the endothelial leakage that these patients saw. And they screened these and two compounds showed up. One of them was vitamin D itself, was able to stop this, this endothelial leakage and pre pre uh, prevent the endothelia. Much better even than 25D or 125. This was a non-genomic function where this vitamin D got inserted and stabilized the membrane. The, the parent compound, the compound that you take in dietary or you make in the sun initially. And, you know, these guys submitted this to Nature, and Nature says, no, 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 we're, we're, not, we're not publishing that. That's, that's a bridge too far. So it was published in, in PLOS One. It was really an interesting, uh, I thought, a phenomenal paper. And uh, it gets no, you know, it's, it's out of, it's out of uh, the mainstream of what vitamin D people think. Yeah. It's not genomic. Nature is the same journal that published the uh, primary reference that scientists are using to say that this virus was zoonotically transmitted and was not man-made or synthetically produced. So they'll produce, they'll publish studies like that, but they'll fail to publish stuff on the vitamin D. But, but think about the potential here with, uh, in, in this disease with COVID and attack on the lungs, mm -hmm. where you have destruction of endothelial. I mean, it's, it's probably the major problem in this disease. And vitamin D in this model showed to stabilize that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one mechanism of how it likely works. There's probably others, and maybe oh, that's many. That's just one. Yeah, yeah. So why, why don't we elaborate on on some of the others? Because I think it, you know, it, from my perspective, it's helpful if you if you recognize and understand that there's solid science and mechanisms behind why vitamin D works. So, can what are some of the other ones that you know? So Carol, talk about you could talk more about the immune, uh, you know, the innate and adaptive systems and how they're affected. And, and so. You know, certainly um, vitamin D has effect on the innate immune system. So, um, you know, your monocytes, your macrophages, your dendritic cells, 
and your ability to engulf um typically you know it's known for it's antimicrobial but that does include viruses as well and then your adaptive immunity with your t cells so um the the balance of t regulatory cells and um you know the t helper cells and if you have an overabundance of your t you know you have to have t regulator t suppressor cells and if you have um, an imbalance, you get a horrible um, cytokine storm, and which is what has happened um, with COVID-19. And so there really has to be a balance. And vitamin D is very effective um, at that. You know, probably one of the best examples of something in nature that is such an elegant system is pregnancy. So you have... Um, you go from a very active um, um, immune system where you're you're actually having the um, as you know the eggs fertilized, you have um, invasion into the uterine wall. Um, so you have to allow for that. So there's um, a, it's very pro-inflammatory state. And then um, in order to allow fetal growth, you have to have quiescence of that. And you see shifts in the um, the T cell populations, the phenotypes, um, as well as um, in the, um, the monocyte macrophage population, their activity. And then at the time um, of delivery, you shift back to a pro-inflammatory time um, because you go, a woman will go into labor and um, you have expulsion of the fetus and, and the placenta. So it's a, it's a tremendously elegant process. And we know that when it's deranged, we get such conditions as preeclampsia. So you get a vasculitis um, throughout the body and it can lead to death of both the mother and the fetus. And you have cytokine storm during that. So COVID-19 is not like a foreign um, alien, right? It, it's, it's utilizing um, the very um, immune system that we have in our body and it makes sense that, you know, so it's, even though this particular virus is new, right, um, it's incorporating a systems within our body that are ancient. And that includes a very ancient um, pre-pro-hormone, which is vitamin D. So I, um, it, it makes sense, again, to me, as a, as a physician as, and as a scientist, that, um, those individuals who have balance in their bodies, um, in in this case vitamin D balance, that they're gonna they're gonna do better than if they have deficiency. They can't mobilize those cells. Those cells are gonna be dysfunctional. Okay, that that is exactly what I was looking for. So thank you for that response. But I'd also like you to follow up with that because we've been talking about the immune benefits and clearly there's that alone is reason enough to make sure you optimize your vitamin D levels, but there's, that's just the tip of the iceberg and you have been and Bruce together have been so fabulous at producing research that documents that some of the other benefits like the preeclampsia you managed. So I want you to follow up on that, but there's, there's also other things like cancer. Yes. Carol, uh, Baggerly can discuss that, and she's uh, you know really impressed with that. And then the heart disease. So there, there's I mean, it's just it is such a phenomenally important well, nutrient. I'd like to go back and when Carol and I did our initial grant in 2003. So back then 
we were doing this grant because we wanted to know the answer is what what would it take to get these women to a point of vitamin D levels? Uh, how much would it take? How many thousands of units a day? Uh, and also safety, are we gonna hurt anybody? Uh, and then we threw some stuff in there because at that time it was only bones. So we'll have a look at the bones by dexatometry. And, and uh, we, had, we, we didn't ask the questions about immune function because we didn't know enough to ask, ask those questions. Mm -hmm. But we certainly, you know, kept all the data. And I can remember as we're going through this and mm -hmm. studies winding down. So I go, I got invited to speak at a vitamin D workshop in Belgium in 2009. So I went and presented the study and I put up the, 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 uh, the statistics showing uh, decreases in, in, in linear fashion in our groups um, um, for complications of birth. Mm -hmm. All right. I got called every name in the book on that stage. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, it turned into a really a vicious fight with the people in the audience who were basically bone people. And I'm up there telling them, and some, but some of these guys had, had researched vitamin D and pregnancy their whole career, but it was always based on bone. And here I'm up there telling them about this and there. And I mean, it was really, really hostile. All right, so would uh, uh, the other two of you would like to comment on some of the other benefits and maybe, uh, Carol, you want to just expand on the preeclampsia you mentioned earlier because that's such an important thing. It's a devastating disease. And it's, it, to imagine there's something so simple as op optimizing your vitamin D levels could essentially eliminate this major risk factor to a healthy birth. From, from what we've seen from our studies and other studies throughout the world. Uh, vitamin D uh, status is really important very early in pregnancy when the placenta is embedding into Possibly the uterus. even before pregnancy? Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. And um, so we call it um, placentation, so that whole process. And, and so the biggest impact is if, if a woman it, early on in pregnancy, um, we see that um, her vitamin D level, if it's 40 nanograms per ml or higher, her likelihood of preeclampsia is, is much lower. And we see this um, particularly most dramatically in our African-American uh, population. Um, and then, you know, vitamin D has been linked with, vitamin D status has been linked with um, diabetes, so gestational diabetes. There's some data to suggest, um, again, you know, depending on the dosing and the levels achieved and when it's um, initiated. And other studies, you know, if they start supplementing uh, toward this end of the second trimester, they see really no, no benefit. But there, there are other, um, um, certainly in, in children, um, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, is very well documented and there was a prospective study done in Japan where they randomized children and they sh showed a decreased um, risk of RSV infection in those who had um, the higher dose. And I just want to say one other thing, um, and then I'm sure Carol will have a lot to say about other diseases, but the dose that we give to newborns, okay, so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends 400 international units a day <laughs> to all breastfeeding 
um, babies within the first couple of days. And that actually leads to wonderful levels in the blood if given. So those babies have levels somewhere around 40 to 50 nanograms per ml who are on 400 international units a day. Yet, um, the prenatal vitamins that up until recently had only 400 international units a day, that's what's given to a woman who's 60, 70, 80 kilograms, okay? So if you, and, and in pediatrics, everything that we do is, you know, a milligram per kilo or, you know, international unit per kilo, that kind of thing. And so it absolutely makes no sense, if you think about it, that we're giving a newborn baby the same dose right, or rather that we're giving a pregnant woman, a lactating woman, the same dose that we're giving a newborn baby. And, you know, it's time honored in pediatrics because the dose of um, vitamin D in one, you know, teaspoon of cod liver oil is 400, around 400 international units. But anyway, just just um, to keep that in mind. That's a, that's a good perspective. Thank you. Just one quick follow-up question for you too. Uh, I, I thought there was an association between vitamin D deficient pregnant women and having a child who is going to develop type one diabetes, an autoimmune disease. Um, I have seen um, some data to suggest that, and maybe Carol Baggerly might comment more on that. Um, we have not followed those children um, in our cohort beyond um, to the age where they would be developing that, but I have seen that reported. And Bruce, maybe, and Carol, you might want to come. There's significant studies done with um, children, actually, but also the moms receiving significant vitamin D levels um, where type 1 diabetes in the children doesn't occur. And we have a lot of data to support that. And we're working with the Diabetes Research Center to see even after the child is born, as long as they don't have full-blown type 1 diabetes, what can we do to help stop it? And it turns out that the combination of vitamin D and omega-3s really matters. May I come back to one other thing? Yeah, let me just comment. Have... Let me just follow up on that too, but just yeah. emphasize this because type 1 diabetes is such a tragic disease. I mean, it, and it's, mm. it'd be the, the solution for it, if you can just prevent that is the optimal way. But interestingly, type 2 diabetes, which probably that or pre-type 2 diabetes is present in almost 90% of the population. Insulin resistance, in other words, is likely the other variable that contributes to increasing your risk for COVID, to develop COVID-19. So uh, those are the two in my viewpoint. So anyway, that's why it's so important to, to address this diabetes issue. But why don't you continue from there? I wanted to highlight another area that we worked with uh, MUFC on was this issue of racial disparities and why the darker skinned, especially in their in their society, they had enough of the African-American women to make a statistically significant um, evaluation that very clearly showed that it really wasn't that um, ethnicity that was causing the problem. It was the fact that the skin itself out in our society and our lack of sun that was causing the problem. And once you get the serum level, the vitamin D level, of the darker population to the same level as that we have of the lighter skinned people who can absorb it more readily from the sun, the disease, mm -hmm. uh, like the preterm births, essentially matched. 
So we really, really, really have to get this message out to the darker skin community that they must get their serum levels up now. And while the socioeconomic issue I'm not denying is terms of their health or anything, number one, deal with the vitamin D issue. Is it, and from your experience, is it almost physiologically impossible for a dark skinned individual in the United States, unless they're in Southern Florida or Hawaii, to even get optimal vitamin it's, D? It's impossible. It's impossible. Okay. That's it's what I thought. Maybe in Southern Florida, but in the, if in, in the Northern parts, uh, even in South Carolina, where we see these these uh, racial disparities uh, in blood levels, there's just no way. Because they'd have to spend an hour and a half a day, the very dark-skinned individuals, to get the same amount that you and I would get in 15 minutes. And that's just not going to happen. And then in the wintertime, you, 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 it's, you not have, impossible. Yeah, it's not going to no, happen. No. The other issue that is very dominant is the skin of all of us as for absorbing this vitamin D the cholesterol in the skin that absorbs these rays from the sun gets less dominant as we age. And I met very mm-hmm. recently with another pediatrician, Dr. Bear, um, Bill Sears, and he said, but I'm out in the sun all the time and my, my serum level just isn't high enough. And I said, your body, your skin isn't mm-hmm. prepared in this weather in Southern California still to absorb enough anymore. So as you get slightly older, please, everybody needs to pay attention to what your serum level is. And it's at that point, um, people may need to supplement or find additional sources. Well, I would disagree with that one. I think everyone needs to pay attention to it. Well, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So, but I'm, I'm wondering if you notice that there's a correlation, any of those, uh, you, uh, with between your serum levels of cholesterol and your ability to produce vitamin D. So if you have, um, some people have really low cholesterol levels. Not yeah, it, it's, it's 70 hydrocholesterol in your skin. So, right. so it's a little different. I know, yeah, I don't know that there's a relationship there um, um, in blood cholesterol and, and your ability to make. Mostly it's, it's skin tone and age related uh, okay. to determine that. So the, the the enzymes that produce that uh, cholesterol variant in the skin tends to diminish over. I think it's the actual seventy hydrocholesterol content. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so it's just not enough. It has to get there. You don't eat that. Your body creates it, right? Yes, mm-hmm. right. that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So many opportunities. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Oh, I wanted to. One other thing that I've I've the, is a couple of years ago I was reviewing a paper and they were showing. It was an epidemiologic study from, the, from Harvard. And what they showed was uh, the relationship between magnesium mm. intake. And because you can't do a blood level and tell if you have enough magnesium, like you can't calcium. It's just not, it's, so you have to take it every day. So I, I, I at the time, I, once a year, I go in and have my blood levels tested. And, and I was taking 10,000 units a day and I couldn't get my blood levels above, up to 50. And mm. so I thought, Wow. So I'm going to start taking magnesium. So start taking 400 milligrams a day. And my levels are now 60 on 6,000 units a day. So magnesium intake can, can have profound effects on the conversion mm-hmm. of that of, of into 25D, whether it's an enzyme cofactor, which probably it is. Uh, but the magnesium intake is, is really important. And I, 
I never paid much attention to that until then. That's a good, that's a good point. So there's a synergism between vitamin K2 and vitamin D, but does the K2 have any influence on the ability to generate higher vitamin D levels? No, I, I, I don't know what, I, I don't, don't see that vitamin K as a, these are enzymatic reactions and, you know, these trace minerals act as cofactors in that cycle. So I'm assuming that, that you know, magnesium, which most people don't get enough of, simply is a limiting factor in that enzymatic reaction. So That is anyway, what we've it, seen, it, which is why it, we've added a separate kind of magnesium test. Huh? What, Carol? Yeah, we're running a separate, Grassroots Health is now running, I believe, an RBC magnesium level. Actually, it's a whole blood magnesium oh, whole blood. level. Okay, sorry. Uh, right, and it parallels the um, kind of ionized magnesium test, which is very expensive for people to do. So we're working that now and seeing big correlations with magnesium and the co-effects back again to the co-nutrients that. So what, what, what are the summaries of your observations? What, 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 is the hi what are the highlights that you've noticed? The biggest highlight that I think we've noticed so far is that Number one, it matters, and you can visually see the matters. We don't have enough data on it at this point in time to quantify um, those kind of statistical things we need to do, but that and vitamin C intake and vitamin B6 intake, there are so many things that we're able to track now that people have not paid attention to as ex except for separate kind of things. We're seeing effects, great effects, on our population of thousands of people. So, so I think this is a good time to put in a plug for grassroots health and what the study involves. And so maybe you could summarize what that would look like if someone was intrigued with what we've been talking about <laughs> now, how they can participate, and what the process of participation involves. Currently, the process of participation is to log on to our website, grassrootshealth.net, and there are a number of projects that we're working on. There's one called Magnesium Plus, uh, which you can sign up for, which allows you to enroll in that project. And the process is to participate in this fantastic field trial study to see how is it working for you, and the you is, is individual, and you get blood spot tests that you do at home, and they include vitamin D, omega-3, the magnesium, and there are also an elements test, uh, which includes the test of several elements, including copper and zinc, and some that are good for you and some that are bad. And given those kind of results, um, along with a questionnaire that the participant fills in, they see what the effect is on their um, blood levels or their intakes and their resultant um, effects on various health conditions. And not only theirs, but they can also look at over thousands of people at this level, for example, back to vitamin D, uh, their pain due to something was reduced by 80% and they can see where they fit versus where our larger population fits. So uh, it's all data-based and science-based, and we're very, very, very keen on making sure that all participants get answers to how is whatever they are doing working for them. Yeah, so the, just as a caution is that the questionnaire you reference is, is quite extensive. It's going to take more than a few minutes to complete, so you have to schedule it, schedule mm -hmm. it in. So, but the, 
the reason for the details in the questionnaire is to tease out some of these variables it would be hard to find other ways. And what's yes. your recommendation for follow-up and the frequency of doing the testing? Uh, a depends upon which projects you're enrolled in and the minimum levels, but generally we recommend a minimum retest for whatever in about six months. There are some projects we are doing that require retesting in about three months and it depends and the project we're going to be running with um, MUSC, there are some tests based on the nature of the project that we'll be doing monthly. So mostly every six months max. And how, many, how many people have you have uh, participated this, up to this time? Because it's been 13 years now. Oh, we have over 15,000 participants in many studies and done a lot of work with lots of researchers and ourselves. Okay. And we're very grateful for them. I mean, if the participants themselves mm -hmm. didn't see the value in, as you say, frequently taking charge of their health, um, this wouldn't happen. But there are lots of people out there that care. Yeah, hey, Joe, I'd like to come back to just before this ends is, is to the COVID. You know, Carol and I, we got, it's a long story how we got into this, but study being designed for COVID in South Carolina. But, you, you know, the outreach to the, the populations that we have to get to are people of color and nursing homes. Mm. Because that is where the, the really problems are. And so that's what we're, Carol and I, and she'll tell you a little about the project because she's done most of the designing, but that's where uh, we're going to be targeting and right. And, and it's not an acute care. You, you can't bring somebody half dead into the hospital and give them <laughs> vitamin D and say we're going to save them because there's no drug that they have that's doing that. They're all, they all fail at doing that. We're going to do well, there's, a, there's a few interventions that could be useful. They're, they don't treat the cause, things like hyperbaric yeah. oxygen therapy. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're all, but vitamin D is not. So, you know, yeah. people bring that up, but that's not the intent. The intent of ours is to get these people in, in, in good shape. So if they're exposed to the virus, they don't come down with these severe cases. Yeah. yeah. And we got to reach okay. the susceptible populations. And so Carol, I'll let you go into. Uh, so, you know, we have been, uh, we put together a study that um, will be submitted to our uh, human subjects committee shortly. Um, and we're working with grassroots health on this. Um, so we're taking um, individuals who come to our virtual clinics, um, tents, whatever, for COVID-19 testing. And those who are negative um, at the time of testing, um, clearly something brought them there. Um, they get randomized to 6,000 international units a day of vitamin D um, or placebo. Everyone takes 800 international units a day of vitamin D in the form of a multivitamin that also has magnesium and vitamin C and the B vitamins. And then, um, we follow them monthly for retesting, and if they become positive, um, you know, we'll note that in their, the severity of their symptoms and their uh, duration of, of, you know, the acute illness. And then... Um, are, are, you you measuring, are you measuring vitamin D levels? Too? Oh, yes, every month. Um, and along with that, um, we're, so we're measuring their, their COVID-19 um, PCR, so do they have the virus, yes or no, antibodies, and they're 25 OHD monthly. 
Um, and then in the um, COVID positive arm, so these are people who have tested positive but are outpatient, um, it typically takes somewhere between 24 to 72 hours to get those results, but they would get a bolus of 20,000 international units um, a day for three days, and then they would take the 6,000 plus the, um, the um, and actually I, I think the, um, I misspoke, the, the multivitamin has um, 800 international units plus the other um, vitamins. And, um, and then if they're compared to a placebo group who's taking only the multivitamin. And again, the same endpoints looking at uh, severity of symptoms and um, whether, you know, did they require hospitalization? How, how long was it before they could return to their normal daily activities? And we have, um, you know, respiratory um, questionnaires and um, we're looking also at the nasal drainage, um, the, uh, the, um, the actually um, doing phenotype um, in, the, in the secretions from the nose and so forth in those individuals. And a key measure though of the vitamin D is the desired outcome of at least 40 nanograms per ml. So those Absolutely. Have, yes. have not achieved at it, that in two months or time, they will be, their doses are going to be adjusted to get there. It's not going to be dose. Yes, absolutely. Thank right. you, Carol. We're really looking at the quote second wave if it comes in the fall. Mm -hmm. We're very much trying to help minimize that. No, I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, that's how we'll really, that's how we'll really get to the bottom of these answers. Yeah. We so how, how many people are you anticipating enrolling in the trial? So we have enough funding for a pilot study. So that's um, 90 individuals in the, um, in the uh, COVID negative arm of the study. And then we have 50 individuals um, in the pilot who are COVID positive. We hope to get additional funding and we would want a total of 400 in the COVID negative and an additional, and a total of 200 in the COVID positive. Um, and so we're um, trying to apply for all sorts of grants and things. Right. Um, are, what, is there an effort to target the uh, susceptible populations that, that uh, Bruce mentioned with yes. respect to the, the, uh, those in the nursing homes and the yes. people of color? Yes, and also um, we're it, this study is for um, those who are 50 years and older, mm -hmm. and we are um, really going to some of the communities that have um, much higher rates of COVID-19, higher African-American populations, um, so Florence, Lancaster, um, Marion, and, and also certainly here in Charleston, um, because we feel that um, those individuals and also our Hispanic population um, and those individuals uh, who are at greatest risk would show the greatest benefit. So we certainly are um, trying to get the word out um, to the different agencies here in South Carolina. Yeah, that is, that is such a massively important focus and it's something that I think that I didn't fully appreciate is that should be a targeted campaign because it, it, the impact mm -hmm. should be enormous. I mean, yes. it's exactly and, what you predict. And we're not the only ones looking at this. There are other studies, so by, by different doses. Um, Joanne Manson at the Institute of Medicine study, they're doing 
largely the same thing, but much lower. They're they're using the IOM standard of 800 units as their. <laughs> But I mean, there'll be others. So we will have an answer to this. And, and they're probably not measuring blood levels. I probably not. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it right, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I one of the things I wanted to highlight as well is that because of our infrastructure with major, major communities, this is why. Uh, we're working with MUSC on their local area, and I would call it local, meaning South Carolina. But we are expanding what we are able to do across any place right now in the United States and Canada, certainly where we can help any community that wants to establish um, such a project uh, from a community standpoint. We're ready to help them do that. Hey, Joe, I have yes. to go. I'm actually talking okay. to a U.S. senator about this who's a black guy. Oh, boy, that would be great. Uh, that yeah. is wonderful. He's a, he's a guy that can make a difference. Yes. He's a guy yes. that can definitely make a difference. So good luck with that one. Yep. Thank you for your time. Mm -hmm. All right, well, thank you. Thank you for your time and your work. You're the pioneer. The only one of the only people who, who preceded you was Robert Haney. Yeah who yeah. Carol mentioned earlier, and he, he's not with us anymore, but he was a, he was a giant too. Yeah. Thank Definitely. you. Thank you. All right, so any other comments uh, from either of the Carols before we sign off? Um, you know, back when you asked um, the effect of vitamin D specifically on the immune system, and one of the things that I think is worth mentioning is you know there are receptors all over the body for vitamin D, and mm -hmm. it includes the um, type two cells, which create surfactant. And you've um, and so you know the the issue of um, whether or not an infection gets from upper respiratory to down into the lung. That's when it when it progresses from upper respiratory to lower respiratory. It's the lower respiratory infection that's um, associated with cytokine storm, and I think it's particularly important. So um, vitamin D has a tremendous effect on the local renin angiotensin um, system. So you've probably heard about ACE2 and so forth. And so vitamin D specifically affects um, surfactant production. This local uh, renin angiotensin um, system that um, is involved with fluid clearance. So you know, if you get swelling in the lung tissue and the alveolar repair, which is basically the lung tissue repair. Um, and so all of these um, processes are affected by vitamin D. And, um, we see it in preterm infants, and we see it again. We're seeing this kind of effect in adults, and so it, it's a very consistent system. Um, and when you have vitamin D deficiency, that whole um, system is deranged. And I, I think it's worth commenting. But yeah, thank you for mentioning that with the vitamin D receptors, which is so important for the modulation of the cytokine. cytokine storm expression uh, and, and toning that down with that NR, NRLP3 inflammasome. So um, great information. So Carol Baggerly, any information from you that you'd like to tie up the loose ends and, and emphasize? 
The biggest loose end I would like to tie up is that people can take action right this minute to measure their vitamin D levels and do something about it. We don't have to wait for major things. It's safe. We've already demonstrated that they can do it to uh, help themselves with their whole bodies. So. Yes, really important. It doesn't cost a lot. I mean, if you're really strapped for cash, then you can't do the test. You can't do the test. Well, but that's where ideally, we need some active yeah, We need some help with that because, but ideally it's better than nothing, but you, the optimal is to do the test and to combine it with magnesium and vitamin K2. I believe that's a great trio. The K2, as Bruce mentioned, is not going to necessarily improve your vitamin D levels, but it's a very powerful synergistic combination that will optimize your uh, bone and heart health. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks Be well. for the opportunity. All right. Appreciate you.